Hello everyone, welcome to COP28 All Access with me, Ridi Klavi. Can you believe this is our final episode? In this special four-part series on Investec Focus Radio SA, we've been speaking to some of the world's leading experts at the UN Climate Change Conference in Dubai as we delved into the significance of COP28 for South Africa, our continent, in fact, all of humanity, if we don't halt the threat of the climate catastrophe. We've critiqued the solutions on the table, the obstacles towards reducing global temperature rises to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, And we've also explored the opportunities for innovation in our journey to a just transition. Business analysts, policymakers and youth have all been unanimous in calling for the phasing out of fossil fuels and demanding a switch to renewables if we are to save our planet from calamity. But the... The final statement coming out of COP28 has caused some intense disharmony. My head is actually trying to um, make sense of it all. It is spinning as I try to process it all, given the optimism that uh, started this conference a few days ago. It does, at the moment, feel as if a cloud has fallen over this conference. The divisions and tensions are quite palpable. So listen to this. The issue here is that the statement avoids an emphatic reference to phasing out fossil fuels, preferring instead a phase down. So from (laughs) phasing out to phasing down. And you can imagine, since most of the protests here in Dubai have centered around the phasing out of fossil fuels, in fact, in episode Uh, Three, we brought you voices of the youth. We brought you voices from the ground who were protesting and demanding that we phase out fossil fuels. So to arrive at this point on the last day of the conference and have the words almost diminished in significance sends a particular message that perhaps COP28 delegates here, policymakers here, are not serious about responding to the climate crisis. It also, as far as critics are concerned, sends a message that the fossil fuel lobbyists have infiltrated this conference. This is not a conspiracy theory. Kumi Naidu said that quite clearly in our episode three, that the fossil fuel industry should not be part of COP28. The youth activists that we've spoken to have said that they demand a phasing out of fossil fuels. In our first episode, we also heard from UN representatives and the Secretary General himself, who said that we cannot allow a single project that relies on fossil fuels anywhere in the world if we are serious about responding to the climate crisis. So do you see where the controversy lies? Do you see where the unhappiness lies? Because this was the conference that was meant to then scale up climate action, climate adaptation, the financing, the decision-making. So to be here at COP28 and still be talking about um, phasing down after all the progress that has been made from the pro from the Paris Agreement to Glasgow to Copenhagen, people do feel as if there's some sort of a let a let down or an anticlimax. You can actually feel and hear the tension 
the desperation, the reprimand spoken in every word in the dying hours of the negotiations by the Executive Secretary of UN Climate Change, Simon Steele. Listen to this. We do not have a minute to lose in this crucial home stretch. And none of us have had much sleep, so I'm going to be incredibly brief in my remarks. Negotiators have a chance right here in Dubai over the next 24 hours to start a new chapter. One that really delivers for people and planet. The highest climate ambition means more jobs, stronger economies, stronger economic growth, less pollution, better health. Much more resilience, protecting people in every country from the climate wolves at our doors. Secure, affordable, safe energy for all. Through a renewables energy revolution that leaves no country or community behind. Instead, leaving our dependence on fossil fuels behind. As I've said many times, finance must be the bedrock to scale up climate action on all fronts. A new text will be landed um, shortly, within the next, um, the next few minutes. But the areas where options need to be negotiated have narrowed significantly. We are now here to discuss two issues. One, how high is our ambition on mitigation? And two, are we willing to back this transition with the proper means of support to deliver it? Let me assure you, from our viewpoint at UN Climate Change, the highest levels of ambition are possible for both. I repeat, the highest levels of ambition are possible on both. But if we reduce on one, we reduce our ability to get either. So that leaves us with the question, how do we get from here a meaningful deal? First, clear the unnecessary tactical blockades out of the way, and there have been many along this journey. The global stock take needs to help all countries get out of this mess. Any strategic landmines that blow it up for one, blow it up for all. The world is watching, as are 4,000 members of the global media and thousands of, of observers here in Dubai. There is nowhere to hide. Second, I urge negotiators to reject incrementalism. Each step from the highest, each step back from the highest ambition will cost countless millions of lives. Not in the next political or economic cycle for future leaders to deal with, but right now across every country. Third, 
preserve and respect every party's seat at the table. Inclusion, representation and transparency are key tenants of this process. And fourth, in this final quarter, it's all eyes on the prize. That means highest ambition outcomes must stay front and center. The reality is the highest ambition outcomes are the only way for all governments to leave Dubai with a win under their belt. One thing is for certain, I win, you lose, is a recipe for collective failure. Ultimately, it is 8 billion people's security that is at stake. Science is the backbone of the Paris Agreement, especially when it comes to the world's temperature goals and the planetary limit of 1.5. That center must hold. So given what has transpired here in the last couple of hours, we thought let's just call Kumi Naidu again, human rights and climate justice activist, about his idea of what would constitute a successful COP28. What would a successful COP28 have looked like? Okay, so firstly, we have to move beyond the rhetoric of climate finance to making it a reality. So with regard to the loss and damage fund, we need to ensure that resources are there on scale, much more than what has been put there now, and that it's operationalized very quickly. If you look at what happened in Durban mm. in uh, last and, year, mm-hmm. when um, you know close to 500 people in two days lost their lives mm. and massive damage to infrastructure, people were left homeless and so on. It is important that there is support for developing countries for them to be able to be supported by that fund, right? And when we are seeing multiple extreme weather events, like for example, in Africa last year, We've had about a 2 to 5% impact on GDP, right, uh, as a result of extreme weather events. We've had countries having to divert about 9% of their revenue spend to address extreme weather events. And when you're talking about a continent like ours, where we are stressed with poverty and deprivation already, that's quite a significant impact. So getting the action on the Loss and damage fund is important. Secondly, we need clear uh, investments and an adaptation plan. Uh, Because you see, in the climate negotiations, this gets into a little bit of jargon, but there's mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation is about reducing carbon emissions and trying to control it. But adaptation is also saying that, you know, for the people of the coastal parts of Bangladesh, it's already too late to imagine that there's not going to be any impacts because we're seeing it already. So how do we provide resources for people to adapt to permanent changes that have been made? Like Mm. in Africa, for example, we're seeing rains coming when they shouldn't, Mm. not coming when they should. What does that mean about how you help people to adapt to a different way of agriculture, for example? So people have to look at their own agency right now. And actually, the way to embarrass government into action 
is actually by saying to ourselves, there are certain things we can do on our own. Can mm-hmm. we set up a community-owned uh, renewable energy grid on our own? If there's legislation as it is in South Africa blocking it, what do we need to actually push that uh, forward? So right. the climate anxiety that's there is understandable, especially young people are feeling it. But we have to recognize that the best antidote to that climate anxiety is participation, engagement, working with other people, building community and building solidarity so that people don't have to feel as alone and powerless as quite often many of us feel. So that's Kumi Naidu not mincing his words. So the question is, did anything good come out of COP28? Did we make any progress whatsoever? Well, we are glad you are enjoying this podcast and would appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate the show. Be sure to follow Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts to listen to previous episodes in our COP28 All Access series. Let's get back to this hot issue. Did we achieve anything? And what did what do we do then about this tone down that has happened? This toned down language Is it indicative of the lethargy or the lack of action that we are going to see in the build-up to COP29? Let's hear now from the former advisor at at the African Union and senior advisor on climate diplomacy and geopolitics. She is a professor at UCT, and she'll give us a perspective from a geopolitical point of view. What do we make of the emerging divisions between a group of countries, including Australia, the US, UK, Canada, and Japan, who are well, who seem to be divided. It seems to be the global north, as it were, and some countries, including Japan, some vulnerable communities, some island nations, and so on, versus the UAE and others. They are saying, hold on, we are not going to sign this final declaration. We are not going to be a co-signatory to, and I quote, death certificate. They're calling this the death certificate the refusal to phase out fossil fuels and phase them down is called the death certificate. And they're saying they're not going to be co-signatories for small island states and they demanded a stronger agreement. What does it all mean? It's a pleasure now to welcome a member of the African high-level panel of experts on the reforms of the multilateral system. And that's something that's very central to these negotiations, multilateralism. And she's also a former advisor at the African Union and senior advisor on climate diplomacy and geopolitics, Fatin Agat. It's such a pleasure to have you here on this very last day of COP28. I wonder, you know, there was so much optimism in the build-up and in the last couple of days, but it seems as if there's lots of tension or uh, some pushback and so on. Is this to be expected? Can we say this was a good cop? I think the pushback was expected. Um, I think we knew that this cop was going to be the cop of uh, fossil fuels. Um, and and we knew that there was going to be a risk also of of other agenda items being drowned in that conversation. So, 
Um, I'm personally not not very surprised with where we stand uh, where we stand right now. Now that being um, uh, being said, um, we always at this time of uh, in any COP, um, we always find ourselves in a situation where um, a lot of a lot of uh, tensions. Um, or tensions are, uh, 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 get higher and where the theatrics um, increase, etc. Um, but, you know, we end up eventually coming up to uh, with with a conclusion and with, uh, with an agreement. I hear that. And I've certainly covered a whole lot of cops. And sometimes I think all of it is, is theatrics. There's always this build <laughs> to this tension. And then it's like the last minute drive. And then when you speak to insiders, mm-hmm. they'll tell you that the final, the outcome of any cop uh, climate is actually decided prior to that. So it's all performative. Yeah. But here's the thing that is standing out for me. The debate around fossil fuels, it seems to be heated, particularly because the CEO of COP28 kind of made some comments earlier on um, where it sounded like he was questioning the, the very science. But in the debates right now, it looks as if the expectation was that more momentum will be put on phasing out fossil fuels. And the criticism is that there has been some sort of tone down. So that's where the, the, the difference is. Can you share your thoughts on that? Um, yes, I think I think the language that we have seen emerging is a reflection of um, compromise being struck between uh, different different parts of the world. Um, I mean, this this language around a, a, a fossil fuels um, phase out. Um, is extremely controversial, not just for the UAE presidency, which I understand is uh, trying. And, and in fact, they, they, from what I hear from different diplomatic sources, they, they seem to want a, a conclusion that says uh, phase out because they see that as the major win for and the major legacy of the COP they hosted. But there are obviously different interests. A lot of attention has been on, on countries such as Saudi Arabia. Um, but this issue of fossil fuel is equally controversial for countries such as China, for countries such as India, and even for the Africa group, in fact. And at the heart of it is is really this this. Um, this issue around the a sense of of hypocrisy um, um the if, if one looks even at the data a third of the global uh, expansion in, in fossil fuels will, will come from neither one of these regions it will come from from the us um the number of of uh, um, uh, licenses and permits for drilling that were provided um, you know, with again, I take the U.S. under the Biden administration is more than six thousand permits, and so there's a sense that um, we're speaking of fossil fuel phase out as a, a deliverable, um, but in a way that's detached from the reality of a lot of countries, and particularly for 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 regions such as Africa. Um, where climate finance has not been forthcoming, where despite the announcement that this COP that there will be tripling of renewable energies, uh, renewable energy um, uh, development, but we still don't know where those resources will come from. Who is going to triple? Whose responsibility is it? And so we're we're finding ourselves in a situation of. Um, you know, give and take, um, which I think it makes it extremely difficult negotiation. 
And I suppose that also creates the impression that some countries, Africa, um, uh, some in Africa as well, are resistant to the limiting of warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is quite ironic, an ironic accusation, Mm. given that the most vulnerable communities are the ones who suffer disproportionately from the adverse effects of climate change. So I can't see how African countries would want to delay that, which would ensure Mm. their survival and sustainability. But the crux of the matter is that fossil fuels have been identified as the bad guys, as it were, Mm. in this uh, uh, global warming architecture. But we've got different economies, different realities in our societies. How do we then achieve, with the knowledge that we do need to uh, to make the transition for the survival of humanity and our planet, we do need to switch to cleaner energy. How do we do that in such a way that we take into account the differentiated pathways? You talk about that in your statement, differentiated pathways where African countries um, can, can respond to the realities on the ground. Um, I completely agree with you, Rodi. That I, I, I think, I think the the question is not whether we should transition or not. I think that's widely accepted. I think, as you rightly pointed out, and and we've seen it in the different IPCC reports, that Africa is in fact one of the most affected regions. We know very well that. Um, you know, entire countries, in fact, in the Pacific will disappear and in the Caribbean because of this. So I think there is there is a commitment. I think the challenge is more the just transition dimension. And that just transition means that a um, uh, the 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 high emitters, um, historical in, and the ones that we have today, need to take leadership. Um, and unfortunately, that leadership from the historical uh, polluters is not necessarily forthcoming. But and 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 I think one needs to admit that it's difficult, and it's difficult for everybody. Um, not just for developing countries, but also for industrialized countries for several domestic political reasons. And so I think I think the 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 um what we need to really do is is get the sequencing right um and get the financing as well as discussion on transfer of technology right. By sequencing, I mean that some regions, some parts of the world are in a better position, financially and in terms of of access to technologies to transition earlier than others. Um, And and I think those need to take a leadership. Unfortunately, for much of the industrialized world, they're also not on, on, if one looks at their policies, those policies are also not putting them on a pathway to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2050. Um, And so I think those regions need to take uh, a leadership. Um, Then we have the more emerging economies and middle-income countries to follow. So I think there is space there to play a bit with the timeline, not too much because we are in a situation of emergency, Um, but but we need some to take leadership. And obviously the question of finance, the world does not lack money. Um, What the world is lacking is a, a proper system um, to ensure that uh, the rich are properly taxed and that uh, money is probably uh, properly redistributed. Um, and so um, for for countries such as those in Africa, imagining a transition that involves even more in-depthness is, 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 is 
yeah, is, is a red line, as some of the negotiators would say. I think so we need important. to provide those tools. I think that's important because, you know, we've heard the um, themes around adaptation, finance, uh, loss and damage fund. Uh, we had Kamala Harris making these grand announcements. They were criticized as the U.S. for not putting enough in the loss and damage fund. Um you know, you said that there's enough money in, in the world to, to finance this just transition. But the problem is that the pledges sometimes are not obligatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, countries have uh, the latitude to just make changes um, uh, whenever they can. Uh, the United States speaks loudly about the amount of money it's it's putting on the table. I mean, it's hard for vulnerable communities to know who is a friend and who is a foe. Uh, yeah. Because right now, from a geopolitical point of view, Australia, the US, Canada, Japan, they've said that they are not going to be co-signatory to death certificate for small island states. And they demanded a stronger agreement. It's like, yay. So they get it. Thematically, they want a stronger agreement. But a stronger agreement can be operationalized without the money. So how do we measure their seriousness? How do we judge their seriousness uh, in in these talks? Is it with the money or with what they say? Um, With the the money, with what they say and with what they do, uh, what they do both domestically um, in in, in terms of making sure that their own, that they meet their own targets um, and internationally in terms of actually concretely delivering on climate finance and we often use this word called additional climate finance, which means that you don't recycle money that you have first committed to education and now you take it, you, you kind of rebrand it into climate. Um, and so we need that that additional uh, resources. I think also we've focused so much on, on money as in cash as the only solution that we're also losing sight of other um policies um um you said it well already that in we're in a situation of where geopolitics play a big role in fact i personally think this is probably the most geopolitical cop that we've had so far um and because of those geopolitics countries are competing also in other areas such as uh, trade Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I take the African continent, um, we're faced now with a situation where the EU, which is our major trade partner, is introducing um, a new uh, uh, border carbon taxation system that will cost us 25 billion per annum um, as a continent. Um, and, and you need to think of it as 25 billion lost in revenue. So 25 billion you can't reinvest in your economy. Um, and so I think we need to look, it's not just about the cash flow from let's say the World Bank or IMF or whatever, but we need to look at at, at, at these partners also working for a reforms of a global system that can enable uh, other forms of, of, of resources to flow to uh, developing regions. Mm-hmm. Do you think these COP28 negotiations, that's the last question, and um, it's about multilateralism, it's about uh, reform of, the, of, of, of multilateral institutions and so on. Is, is, it, um, is, is Africa gaining a more authoritative position, a more audible voice, uh, in climate negotiations generally, but as participants in a multilateral system? 
Yeah, I, I, I personally don't feel that we have the voice that we should be having. Um, and that's perhaps because of the manner with which we structure our engagement. Um, I think for a long time, we saw these climate negotiations as purely the remit of environment ministers. And as you know, uh, ready in our countries, they, they tend to be kind of, you know, not the most glamorous ministerial portfolios. And so it's been a bit neglected. And, but the fact of the matter is that this is not just about the environment. This is about your trade. It's about your investment. It's about your, your financing, etc. Um, and we haven't yet, um, in my opinion, connected all of these dots. And so the, the, this, the effect of that is that our um, our voice and our engagement in these international negotiations um, is perhaps not as strong as one would have desired. Um, and so on some issues, uh, we're clearly very vocal. We're seeing it now on adaptation finance, um, but but on other issues which are equally important, we're, we're more followers than, than leaders, I'm afraid. We'll leave it on that sobering note. Uh, let's just hope that we really move forward because our humanity depends uh, on this and uh, that the pleasures that are made here at COP28 come to fruition. The voices that need to be listened to are indeed listened to. And Fatin, I hope when I speak to you next year, this time, we'll have other uh, uh, measures to, uh, to be able to assess progress in climate talks. Thanks very much for your time. Lovely, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We've come to the end of COP28 All Access and I have loved producing, scripting, researching and presenting this for Investec Special Edition podcast series. If you liked what you heard, you can rate the show and follow Investec Focus Radio Essay on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you very much for listening to COP28 All Access. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Bank Limited, an authorized financial services provider and registered credit provider.